0: state of mind podcast, a proud member of the Global Ag Network. I'm your host, Jason Meadows. And today on the show, we are continuing into part three of our series featuring men's mental health. And today we talked to a really special guy. His name is Matt Nicewonder. I'm really proud of myself for saying that right the first time. Um, I've been having a hard time with saying names lately. Last week, I pronounced Alan's last name Uh, incorrect Uh, apologies to Alan for that but uh, we got Matt's name right the first time here so uh, Matt is a has an incredible story of overcoming poverty and just pretty pretty rough uh, adolescence and and even childhood it's it's an incredible story that he shared with us to come into being a medical practitioner in, in a small community and what that means, what he sees in that and among the ag community. It's just a, it's a really great story and I am, I'm proud to know Matt. I'm proud to um, have him and share his story with you guys. It's uh he's an incredible guy. So I really look forward to y'all hearing from him. Here is my interview with Matt Wonder. All right, Matt Wonder, welcome to the podcast, friend. How are you? I am good, man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Great! I, I'm really excited. We've been looking. I've been looking forward to this for a while. You know, I first heard your story on on Rob Shark, Sharky's show, and I always feel bad sometimes because I feel like I grab a lot of the guests off a of Rob show and try to uh, get them on mine. But uh, your story was so captivating to me. I just I had to get it out in front of our audience. Yeah, man, that was we had, we had a good time.
1: Rob uh, through some mutual connections reached out to me and. Man, it's it, uh, just a great, great platform he got and, and what he's doing with his radio show and his podcast and TV show now. Uh, TV show, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of how these things have happened. You know, you, you hear something and uh, he, he didn't mind. He, he he made some comments about some people trying to steal some people off of his show. But, uh, you know what, that, that's how you get the message out, especially something as important as, as what we're going through now. So,
0: Right, right. Well, tell everybody about your story. Like I said, we, you have such a captivating story of how you kind of got to where you are now from where you were. And I just, I, I I love the story and I'm really excited for everybody else to kind of hear it.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I was born in Foster, Ohio. I moved here when I was uh, about six years old or so. And, uh, um, I grew up to, I was the oldest of three siblings, but I, I had um, two parents. My mom and dad were both uh, drug addicts and alcoholics, and, you know, I grew up in pretty much poverty. Uh, my dad had a pretty decent job, but spent most of it on drugs. They they, uh, they they disappeared for days, and like I said, drug drug problems were a big issue with my family. So, you know, through that process, I, I kind of looking for an outlet, you know, in sports, and, and school kind of became a way I could kind of cover up, you know, the craziness of my life at home, you know. I, I uh, never knew what I was coming home to uh, the cops at our house a lot and different things. So, but through sports, I learned a lot about, you know, school, I learned a lot about work ethic and I had a lot of good mentors, but um, the way farming came along, I, I grew up in, in the middle of town, you know, right in the city. So I had no farming experience whatsoever. And uh, people nowadays see me there they just, they don't, they think it's somebody else. They can't believe it's me, but I got a job. My first job was on a dairy farm when I was 16 I was uh, dating a girl at the time, Colby, and that's actually my wife now. And she thought I was crazy for wanting a job on a dairy farm, but I fell in love with the cattle, and that's that's kind of where my agriculture story started out there. But uh, you know that that same work ethic I learned through sports I carried over to farming. And um, we got married when we were nineteen. Uh, both of us went to school. We put through school. You know, she she went to college, and then when she graduated, I took a turn, and she went back, and then I went back, and uh-huh. we finally kept through school a lot. So. That was kind of our way out of that crazy situation I lived in. You know, I really had no other, no hope. You know, um, um, a lot of people trying to support me and encourage me, but it was up to me at that point, I guess. But we're doing everything kind of right. You know, we didn't have any kids. We got got out of school. Uh, uh, I went as a registered nurse. First time I graduated when I was about 21 as a registered nurse from a community college. And then I went on to get my master's degree uh, as a family nurse practitioner. That's what I'm practicing as now. we were 25 years old we decided we were gonna have to try to have a kid so uh wife got pregnant um and about six months into the pregnancy she had a blood clotting disorder that we didn't know about and caused her to lose the baby so our, our baby we had a little baby girl she was born and died uh and my wife almost died as well the blood was trying to kill both of them so anyway she made it through that and went through several miscarriages after that and we ended up on a having my wife has an aunt that's a foster parent fostered hundreds of kids and she wanted us to foster and i was absolutely against it 100 percent. i didn't want to take care of, of that of a foster kid didn't want to do it as cold hard as it sound. i was just totally against it you know i want to have my own kid and uh anyway my wife's aunt needed a babysitter for a day for one of the little foster kids that was just a few days old and i you know half-heartedly agreed to it and uh the little boy showed up and by lunchtime i we called her and told her if she came to pick him back up, we were going to run away to Mexico. So uh, that's my older Jake. We ended up adopting him. He stayed at the, he stayed he became the house and never left. And uh, we ended up fostering. I mean, I was I was bought and sold right then. So we ended up fostering nine kids, adopting three boys. I've got three sons: Jake, Luke, and Caleb. They're ten, five, and four as of today. And uh, so that that kind of carried us through through that. And then uh, we we. 2014 our farming thing kind of came full circle. I got our schools and our practitioners, let's, let's get back to the farm. Of course still a crazy idea, still a crazy idea, no farming experience and we ended up finding a farm in 2014 and I walked outside and looked around, no fences, no barns, just open land and I thought well now what do you do? I didn't know how to put a fence, I couldn't <laughs> drive a tractor, I didn't know about cows and uh, I became a YouTube farmer. I learned everything on YouTube. So that's, uh, that's how our farming kind of came. And then uh, 2018, we opened up a uh, medical practice. And that's where we own a medical office in Lawrenceburg. Uh, we serve our, our entire county and the largest Amish community, Old Order Amish. We,
0: we do take care of the, their whole community as well. So
1: that's kind of brings you a short, short story up to speed to where we're at now.
0: Yeah. I mean, the whole thing, like from, and I want to start at the very beginning and like growing up, with the kind of upbringing that you had, I mean, what kind of, like, what kind of skills did that give you? Like, I mean, obviously you had to be resilient and you had to be self-reliant, but like, man, how does I like, how does that affect you even to this day? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't, I really,
1: there's so many stories I could tell you, but I, but growing up as a little kid, you know, I still remember one of my earliest memories was living in ohio my mom and dad came in from being gone all day and the babysitter had left because we lived in a like a, I mean we lived on a drug street there was it was people my parents were smoking crack cocaine so they came in and the babysitter had left me by myself i was about four years old and they came in just beating the crap out of each other and they was drunk and high and everything else and, and that was my first that's the first thing i remember as a kid that's one of my only memories uh early on and then um that continued i mean like i said my parents got arrested a lot and and uh I used to have to go to drug houses and get. I would have to find them because we'd be running out of food and money, and that they turn the lights and the water off. And I have to go find them and drag them out these drug houses and bring them home, and you know, and all that. To say that my mom was probably the most, she was the biggest heart. I mean, she cared about other people a lot. She would do all kind of damage to herself, which was severely damaging to people around her. But I learned a lot from her about putting other people first when, when you're not high drunk. And you know, just walking in, I, I've seen my mom overdose multiple times. I've walked in her with she had a pistol in her mouth, trying to load a gun a bunch of times. You know, I've had prostitutes sleeping in my bed when I got home. You know, there's just so many things. But I figured out real quick that we, we live in a pretty harsh world. You know, you can watch the news and figure that out pretty fast. But I learned real fast; it was up to me, you know, and the good Lord to kind of to kind of give me some guidance. But Ultimately, we all got a choice, and I learned about accountability and being very, very intentional about what you want your life and your family that, that you hopefully will have one day, and success or failure, what do you want to look like? And so the, being intentional and being accountable, I, I figured out really, really quick, no matter what anybody else says you are, whatever your last name is, and I got a lot of, a lot of hate from what my last name was. You just, you just have to be, take each step very, very intentionally. And regardless of what you do, good or bad, you got to be willing to be accountable for it. So I'd say those are the two biggest things I pulled out of that.
0: So in your situation in rural America, I mean, I, I, un, unfortunately it's, it's all too common. I mean, there's lots of people who a similar type of thing happens to it, but it's it could have been really easy for you to become a victim and blame your circumstances blame what happened to you because it was it was awful no human being should have to go through what you went through but you didn't do that you didn't become a victim you like you said you said you became intentional and accountable but like but why like why what made it so important like what made it so important for you to get away from that? I mean, obviously looking back, it's easy to answer those questions. Now you have a wife and a family and all these great things, but like when you were in the worst part of it and wanting to get away from it, like, like what, what was like that driving thing that what you wanted you to get away from it?
1: Well, you know, I, when we moved down here, the reason we moved to Tennessee is because my parents were getting into some legal trouble. and, And my dad was trying to honestly get away from my mom's family because they were, she has two brothers that were pretty big guys and they were beating him up. So he was, he, he pulled us down here to get away from everybody. So I had no role models family wise. It was just us. And, uh, you know, I guess looking back, I, I'm the oldest. I have a little brother and little sister and we all have kind of dealt with this whole process a little different. Of course, my mom suffered from all kind of bipolar and depression, and anxiety. and and I'm sure my dad did too, but he was, you know, just not willing to get treated for it, I guess. But you know, looking at those situations and then I would go to my friend's house and they their family would tell me, you can't hang out with Matt because he's a nice wonder or Matt can't stay the night or Matt can't come to the house. You can't go to Matt's house. You know, and that that stuff, I mean, that hurt pretty bad. You know, I right. was, is not even as a kid, you, you're not, you know what's going on. But, you know, I used to lay in, in, in bed at night and my parents would be downstairs just screaming, yelling, cussing, beating the crap out of each other. And I'd go down there and I was... You know, as I got a little older, I got a little more physical, trying to separate them and split them up and that kind of thing. And But when I would go to my friend's house or, or go to school, and my coaches would, you know, everybody wanted to help with words, but nobody wanted to step in because it was scary for them. They didn't know what they were going to get into either, and I don't blame them for that. But I got to at least see what, I don't want to say normal, but what what a typical family looked like, how, how a, a healthy family structure should operate. And I just started to say, like, how did they get that? You know, and why? And even as a young kid, I had to grow up really, really fast. So, even when I was ten years old, I was like thirty years old in my head. And so, and I thought, how, "How did they do that?" And so, I just began to take mental notes. You know, like what did they do? Okay, well, they have a job, they go to work. They don't, they don't lay out for three or four days. They don't t- do drugs. They don't drink. You know, they all these different things. They have stress and they have problems like everybody else. But I just kind of took some mental notes. You know, I had some mentors that kind of walked me along, and and. Would, would bring me up and encourage me and say, Hey, you're good at this. You're good at that. And I found out that, you know, like through sports, I was a quarterback and, uh, and you got a lot on your shoulders and I was trying to cover up what was at home. So I thought, well, if I can be a good enough at quarterback then mm-hmm. nobody else will, they, maybe they won't think I'm such a bad kid. But when I, through that process, you know, and a lot of it, to be honest, is luck. I mean, I just got the right place throughout time, I guess,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: mm-hmm. I found out that if I, if I take accountability for my actions, Really, when it came right down to it, I realized nobody gave a crap whether I succeeded or failed. When it came right down to it, they were going to clock out and go home and go to their family and be successful or whatever they whatever that, that it means. But and when I found that out, as cold as that sounds, you know that that's what clicked with me. Okay, if they can do it, and I can just be accountable, I can do it too.
0: Man, that's like they That's so like. I just, I don't even know how, I can't even put the words to what that means. Like, you know, I'm in my thirties and I'm just now really understanding what personal accountability is. And like, nobody's going to do anything for you. You're going to do it yourself. If it, if it's going to get done, you're going to do it yourself. I mean, that is true in any part of your life, but you learned that when you were, I mean, a child. And so if you want to frame it in a way, I mean, obviously nobody wants to go through what you went through, but you learned some really hard lessons early and maybe in a way that was like a tender mercy almost because, um, you know, it saves you maybe a lot of pain later. You, you went through hopefully a lot of the pain in the early going to maybe save you some later on. Yeah. And it, and it, you know, looking, looking, looking back
1: at it, you know, I'm, fortunate to have went through what I went through because you know as as life got normal you know I had I had me and my wife we we got married really young and, and didn't have any kids because we wanted to go to college first and then everything was going great I'm graduating college I'm, I'm got out of this crappy situation I'm separating myself from all that addiction and depression and anxiety and mental health issues and the stress that was involved and then all of a sudden our kid dies you know and mm-hmm. all all of those attributes or coping mechanisms or whatever you want to call them came right back right into use and you know all the trauma and and all that but so i guess in a way you know that has it has been helpful and i'm, I'm not resentful uh my mom ended up actually overdosing uh, about eight years ago uh she overdosed several times but she succeeded and, and and died this time super traumatic i mean to have your parent die like that but all the stuff I've been through there again, you know, those came back, and I don't know that. You know, a lot of people say there's a there's a point where you got to face your past, and I and I, I keep hearing that, and I keep wondering like when am I going to do it? But you know, it. I guess the mechanisms that I develop, I don't feel that like I go through you know mourning like everybody else does, but but uh, the the normal stages, but I don't feel like I have these demons that are buried down deep inside, and I've got to, they're going to one day show up. Something somehow through the stress of that, I was able to to process it. But I would say the, the probably the biggest moment of my life, uh, one of the biggest moments as, as far as coping goes and, and past kind of experiences after having kids and stuff and, 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 you know, we're going to church and being as Christian as we can be and good people and taking care of other people and concerned about other people. And I went to my dad and I, I he'd come over to my house and I hadn't seen him in years and he came to my house and I just sat him down and, uh, and I said, regardless of what you think or regardless of what you're going to say, I said, I want you to know I just forgive you for all the crazy stuff that we went through when we were kids. You know, I said, it's not for me. It's not for you. But that was a really big weight. I think that was the only thing I held on to is that I wasn't forgiving him of all the things I went through. And, and that it felt like a weight was lifted off my chest when that happened. And uh, short of that, though, man, I just don't, you know, I really don't have that. I don't have any resentment or, or anger or anything towards any of it anymore. I feel like I really was fortunate to go through it, to be honest
0: with you. Yeah. And I can tell that about you and it shifted who you became. And I I think, I don't know, you know, I don't know how most, you know, you can't say, well, most people will react in this way because that's, that's not fair because not everybody was put in that situation. But I think when, if one were to imagine ourselves in that situation, I think we would think about being resentful. Uh, we, we, we would automatically, I think, put ourselves in like, yeah, I would, I would be very resentful of my parents if they were drug addicts and, uh, put me through this. And, but, but when you can frame it in a mindset like you have that, if they hadn't done all those things, if they hadn't Whatever, if they hadn't moved, if you didn't, if all the things didn't happen the way they happened then you wouldn't be who you were today. And it's obvious that you are, you are grateful for that because you took being the worst life that maybe you probably could have imagined turned it into one of the best ones.
1: Yeah. And you, and too, man, the you know, doing foster parenting and, and adopting kids and, and then working in medicine where I deal with people every day and, you know, and just living life. And our, our life's stressful, you know. We all got problems, you know. And, and uh, doing that, honestly, I can have people come here in the office, and I can have foster kids that have been in our house for days and months and years at a time that have, you know, past traumas and things they're going through, and say, you know, they look at me now, and they, you know, I got khakis on and a button-up shirt or something, or I got cowboy boots on and jeans. They look at me and they say, you know, they, they're, I know the problems they got. Looking at me, and I can tell they're thinking, this guy I don't know what the heck. I'm going through. He don't know about this anxiety or about this traumatic event. And then I ended up telling him, let me tell you what happened to me. And they're just like, I would have never in a million years guessed you had those kind of upbringing. And I said, I know it sounds like it's made up. It has given me extreme empathy. Mm. And I have, I do a jail. I, I do the healthcare for the jail here in town every week. And it's actually more of a ministry than it is a job, to be honest with you. But those guys in there, they they know my last name because my parents ran around with them doing drugs back in the day. So, and a lot of them I went to school, unfortunately. And it is the it's it's almost to go in there because these guys and these girls take a breath when I get to see them because they know I'm not judging them because I went through the same stuff. I'm just lucky enough that yeah. I just had a different path and I had some different people, you know, step in my life. And but it's it's really really nice. And like I said, I just can't. I can't tell you how fortunate I feel to have had it because the application that I have now for my kids and our foster kids and my patients and just people in general, at my church and my community and people across the United States. I mean, it's, it's given me a lot of perspective and, and allowed people to break down a lot of instantly take down their barriers when there's nobody they feel like they can really talk to and connect with that understands, you know, that, that may be a quote unquote adult or professional, you know, they feel like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to air this stuff out. And I just say it. I say it like it is, you know, I just tell them, this is where I live. And this is what's going
0: on. This is where I've been and how how I've come up out of it. And a lot of people don't do that. The brutal honesty, you know? Yeah. And so you, you, you transition into this nicely and, you know, I want to talk about what is going on in rural America as far as, as the, the mental health epidemic, the you know, just so it's such a complex issue and, you know, you touched on it just a little bit and I, I'd like for you to expound on that, on, on what it's like being a provider in that, because it is, you're dealing with some people who traditionally, I mean, they just don't talk about these things They it's, it's not something, especially, especially rule men. And that's, that's a, that can be such an uphill battle, but but you do, you p- provide such an important uh, perspective on that because you, you went through it. You went through so much of the things that you're seeing. So yeah, just, just t- talk to me about that on what it's like being a provider in that kind of uh, environment.
1: Well, you know, man, we're, um, and you're exactly right. Guys in general, but especially farmers, we, we have a huge farming community. We've probably got more cows in our County than we got people. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty sure that, but. You know, we, we farm, we raise cattle, so I got a connection to agriculture through that. And we and uh, we, we're USDA certified. We we sell meat in a couple stores. so A lot of people see our product and our name. And then uh, working in the medical office here, you know that I still farm, so I have to haul cows to work some days. But coming in here, the farming community comes to us because because we, we know them, you know, and they and they know my my life story, and they and uh, and they know a farm. So you know, getting guys in here in general is tough. But man, farmers got a hard exterior because. We weather the storm, literally weather storms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the stock markets and the cattle markets and commodity prices and interest rates and loans and payments. And a lot of these farmers come in here and and they're men a few words, women a few words. And having that connection through agriculture because they know that I farm, it's really opened up some some neat perspectives to be able to have communication and conversations with people they wouldn't have otherwise, you know, they just brush it under the rug. So rural America gets pretty hit pretty hard. You know, we've got a, we kind of got, I don't even want to say a double-edged sword, man. We got like a quadruple-edged sword. We got a lot of problems because not only uh, in rural America, but with the mental health problem, but we got an opioid crisis that is striking agriculture in, in rural America a lot heavier than anywhere else. We Farming's a dangerous job. You know, agriculture, timber, you know, forestry is dangerous and that's agriculture. You get hurt a lot. So we go to the doctor and when we do a lot of times we get pain pills and you know, you three days of pain pills, you get addicted. So it's real easy to get addicted to pain pills. And then oftentimes we're stressed out and when these people that go and get pain pills, they're stressed out, they take this pain pill, it gives them a euphoric feeling. They feel better, they're over their anxiety and depression as well for three days or four days or five or a week or a month, whatever days of medicine they get. Well that euphoric feeling becomes addictive. And a normal, just John Doe out there, Jane Doe out there, that is just trying to treat, you know, a a twisted up back. Now hooked on pain pills. Well, they they realize they got mental health problems. Rural America has no mental health services. I I I try to refer patients sometimes for acute crisis, like they come in saying they're gonna, they've had suicidal thoughts and homicidal thoughts. I've been told that it'll be over thirty days before they get them in a mental health facility. And it's, it's, like it's two crazy. Hours.
0: That's, I mean, that's, that's the craziest thing about it. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I mean, that's just, that blows my mind how that's, but I mean, if you're, ta- if you can handle it, you can, and if you can't, you can't, it's just, it's, it just, it, you, it just shows, it just it brings into light the, the, how serious the issue and lack of providers are.
1: Oh yeah. We got, we got a serious mental health problem. And and like you said, man, that the, the stigma around having that conversation even that's why a suicide rates so high. Nobody wants to talk about it, so they just kill themselves. Uh, yeah. Whether it's shooting or overdosing or whatever it might be, I mean, they they just don't want to talk about it, and they bury it and bury it and bury it, and and then all of a sudden, you know, you you find somebody dead, and you're like, what happened? But if you look at the signs, they were all there, you know, in kind of hindsight. But we're we're trying to address that, and and I mean, we're just a clinic in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. But I love my community, and I love I love farm community, and I, and I love Lawrence County here in Tennessee, and you know, I want to do what I can do my part. But I have had people come in that are, are struggling, and I know what they're going through. You know, small town, everybody kind of knows what people has got going on, and it's opened up some good doors that either they just unload on me and tell me everything, or I can kind of prompt them a little bit, and, and they know that I have enough understanding of what they're going through that they go ahead and just tell me what's happening. And I i, I don't know if I've saved anybody's life, but I know I've, I, I've been able to be there for some people when they needed it and had nobody else to talk to. And, and they come in here all the time and they say, man, my family doesn't know I'm taking antidepressants. My family doesn't know I'm taking anxiety medicine. And that ain't nobody's business. Uh, but it, it, they say, man, it's, it's changed my life. You know, My family realizes I'm, I'm being not as grumpy or hard to get along with or whatever. So the the erasing that stigma has started with me by just being honest, you know, and and I feel like that has been the thing is doing stuff like this and just getting the word out. So, but rural America is, 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 uh, is getting pretty hard from, from all aspects of mental health, opioid crisis and all that. So,
0: yeah, you know, we see, we see the opioid crisis around here. I think that's like the, this thing that I can relate to the most because I mean, they, I, 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 hear of people i went to high school dying of opioid overdose or if they're not dying they're they're hooked on it i mean it's it's not uncommon and it's just man it, it breaks my heart and you know another thing that kind of makes me a little cringe a little bit is because it's it, like you said there's so many edges sort of this but it, people who they're they're a lot of times they're getting on the opioid crisis they're they're getting hooked on opioids because it was given to them legally and they obtained it legally and for good reason sometimes, or most of the time, good reason, you know, they they had a surgery or something like that and, and, and to think that that is the cause of this, that... It, it, it just makes it that much more complex because, and I think people try to, people who don't understand it, try to paint it in a black and white way where it's either good or it's bad, or a person is either good or bad, whether or not they are on, they are hooked on opioids or not. And it's not that simple. I mean, it's just not that simple. And you don't understand it until you've experienced pain and then the relief from the pain that comes with the opioid. I mean, it's, it's such a hard thing to to really get across to people who don't understand it
1: oh yeah yeah we got uh, a big problem in, in in our county with with uh with opioids and you know that i think the biggest thing that we see a problem with is if you're in a small town and this is why rural america i think is getting hit a little harder one of the reasons is if you're in a small town you know your medical provider just from around town you know you might have kids that go to school with their kids or something like that so you go see you know your medical provider and you say i've busted my back up i you know, I was working on a hay baler, and I didn't. I picked up a hay rake, and I shouldn't have, or whatever it is. And uh, they give you some pain pills. They give you, let's say, they give you twenty pain pills. You you walk away, and you think, well, you know, that provider is my friend. They ain't gonna give me nothing dangerous. I take one yeah. or two, and, mm-hmm. and it says take one every six hours. And you're like, well, I feel pretty good. Six hours later, it wears off. I take another one. So you trust the medical provider because you know them. The medical provider, on the flip side have to take some accountability because these prescriptions are legal and they come from somewhere. And so it, it, it's, it's some of the healthcare providers fault. Mm-hmm. They think, well, I know, old Johnny, you know, he's a good old farm boy. He don't, he's not going to get addicted to this stuff. They give him 30 more tabs and, uh, lo and behold, old Johnny's maybe already a drug addict, but you think Johnny's just a trustworthy old farm boy and he may be an undercover, you know, uh, he's an opioid addict and you, nobody knows it. So there's, there's, there's some problems there in the healthcare field and, And people get, good people get addicted from legitimate injuries, from legitimate prescriptions, and they really get addicted from something that simple. I hear stories all the time. People call me all the time about their family or friends. And, you know, oftentimes, uh, that mental health aspect is, is when you look at it, it's really more susceptible of people that are struggling with those kind of things because they do get that euphoric feeling. And, And man, this COVID crisis has not helped any of that whatsoever. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we, we thought it was serious in 2019, you know, when, before all of this kind of stuff went down and then COVID happened and it just like blew everything out of the water. I mean, everything is just, it's, we're so hyper-focused on this now and it makes all the problems are so obvious. And now we are dealing with this like almost exponentially more and we were talking before we recorded in the the stress and I and I never really thought of it until you were talking about it but the stress that comes with when you do say you do get a COVID diagnosis what does that mean for you you know are you going to end up on a ventilator or are you not are you going to be okay or are you not I mean there's so much unknown about it I mean that's I mean, I, that, I, that part of it, I never really even thought about until you and I were started talking earlier. And I mean, that's a, that's a huge part of it. That's a huge deal.
1: Oh yeah. You know, you're sitting there and you're, you're laying in bed or sitting at your house and you got this coronavirus and you know, you're taking deep breaths, trying to fill your lungs. Am I getting pneumonia? At what point do I go to the hospital? When do I start the ventilator? You know, all the, I mean, it's irrational thoughts, but it's real. I mean, it, cause you've got this incurable disease that's hiding around seemingly around every corner but you can't find it. You can't, can't put a number on it. You can't really figure out where it's coming from, how it got here, how we going to get it? How's it spread? If it's spread, you know, and let alone trying to figure out who's supposed to quarantine and how they're supposed to quarantine. But it's that, that psychological aspect of, aspect of it is a real, a real thing. And I guess there are some conversations about it. You know, I wrote a, a few weeks back about it and, and talked a little bit about, you know, what COVID has meant and what it's done to us uh, as, as a community and as a nation. But um, that, that psychological aspect of it, you know, the CDC did a study at the end of June, and they asked people in the last 30 days, what symptoms have you experienced? You know, they asked about depression and anxiety and, you know, suicidal thoughts and, and all kind of stuff. Over 30% of people said they had serious symptoms of, of clinical depression and anxiety. And uh, about uh, almost 11% of 18 or older said they had suicidal thoughts but in the 18 to 24 demographic it was about uh to almost 26 of them in that 18 to 24 demographic that said they had suicidal thoughts which is it was it, it's a huge number more than normal that's just for the last 30 days from june 1st to june 30th of, of this year is when they said they that study so uh-huh. volumes to me about what it's doing to people to get to that state
0: yeah and like you said that was in june what's it like what's it going to be like in december you know when when you can't be outside and uh, when the weather is crappy and everything else, and you know, I've, I that eighteen to twenty four demographic there is like one of the most susceptible to mental health issues anyway. I learned that in a mental health first aid training last year, and they're the ones who are that's like kind of the tipping point for people, I think, when they because uh, I think it's such a transformative time in your life uh, for so many kids and. Just and then adding this on top of it just makes it that much harder. And I think people don't necessarily understand that because people look at them and they think they're kids and they think that they don't have a whole lot to worry about when, in fact, they're I mean, even though some of their problems may not seem as important to us. Older adults, but they they're real to them. They're serious to them. And then when you add in the uncertainty of COVID and everything else that's going on, it just makes it that much worse.
1: Oh yeah, you got well, and you know something I think about a lot of times. It's it's kind of interesting. Essential workers and uh, people that were out of work had similar responses, which to me is that's uh, just an interesting thing. And it's, it's it's so it makes you wonder if it's tied to economic how it's maybe not tied to economic issues, you know, that the fact that people out of work, essential workers who are guaranteed to have a job have the same level of anxiety and depression. And then they, I didn't see it. I hadn't really seen a a study uh, on the teenagers. I'm sure there's one out there, but man, can you imagine what our teenagers and and our our elementary school kids are going through, their schools are disrupted, their parents are out of work and, you know, their mental health state's going off the charts and uh, you know, they're having to stay home and they're, and they're not seeing their friends and they're having to the quarantine this virus that nobody understands, but especially a kid, uh, I would say that the rates of mental health issues and suicide and all that is, is probably a higher than, uh, because they're dealing with so many things and they and they just don't have the coping mechanisms built in yet or life experiences to deal with that kind of traumatic uh, stressor.
0: Yeah. And this is something that's happening in real time. And so I think when it's something else, we feel like, there's people who have had experience with something that we can kind of fall back on. That's not happening now. The last pandemic happened over a hundred years ago and most of the, the people who were alive during that were too young to remember it. So that's this is something that we are all doing. Like the kids, they you know can typically rely on their parents, lean on their parents for their past experience and have their parents let them know that it's going to be okay. But that's not really, <laughs> that can't really happen here because parents don't know anything. We don't know what's going to happen. I mean, um, I've had several experiences like that with my kids where my kids are asking, well, is this going to happen? What's going to happen next? And, you know, you just kind of got to be honest with them and say, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's that's one of the hardest things that I think a parent can tell a child and be honest about it when they tell them they don't know.
1: Yeah. And that you know, that's, this is my first pandemic too, so I, I don't I'm still learning how to how to kind of respond. Right. No, that's right. And so we're still now with this election thing going on, there's another stressor and uncertainty that nobody knows what's gonna happen. And you know, we just gotta I don't know, man. Our, our world, I don't I don't know what the fix is for this. in rural America and in, in, in corporate America and and urban America, wherever you wanna go, I don't know how we get this how we get that mental health aspect of it back on track. And those conversations started, you know, we just really, uh, people are struggling and kids are struggling. Families are struggling. Whole communities are falling apart. We're just losing that, that, that sense of stability. And, and, and I'm doing the same thing with my kids and my, my patients. And, you know, me and my wife talk about it all the time. What, what are we going to do next? You know, should we, should we expand our business? Should we stop? Should we quit doing our business? Should we do something? To, you know, I just don't. I don't know. It. it, it, it uh, we're still learning, and I guess the being okay with that because if if you have a good support system, I guess, and you all understand, we're all in this together. You know, the uncertainty and the anxiety,
0: mm-hmm. the
1: fear, and it's okay. You know, it's just it's okay to feel that way. You know, and and I guess having those conversations, like you said, just being honest about it has been the biggest kind of moments for growth, wherever setting I was in.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Being honest with it. And I think that's, and, and being honest and like being upfront with conversations with folks is, is the best way to deal with it because there's no hard data to figure this stuff out. I mean, we're are we're all in it together. We're all learning together and uh, just, just being honest about that. And I think it, maybe, maybe it helps other people know, like maybe people who, uh, are less involved with healthcare, less involved with that sort of part of life. To know that you know the providers are kind of learning and and, and maybe struggling with it too. Maybe that maybe it's a little bit of solace, maybe a little bit of camaraderie there, and you know, helping out. Maybe we all figure that out together.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, and I, you know, having conversations like this, you know, like we said, just creates those connections uh, uh, where where kind of just the ball continues to roll. And, and hopefully some people hear it, but, um, you know, we've got this whole thing, just a uh, pandemic panic and, you know, I, who knows what the economy is going to do. Who knows what the, what this virus is going to do. And, and then I guess we wait on COVID 20 is going to be <laughs> the next thing kind of panic about, but
0: right. But, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. What's next? Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so we'll see. You never know. It, it, hopefully it won't be any worse, but we just have some experience if it happens in
0: our lifetime. So, right. Right, right, right. So let's let's shift just a little bit here and let's talk about you. Let's talk about your farm because that's the fun stuff, right? You know, we talked about all the we talked about all the heavy stuff early. The the YouTube farmer thing, like learning how to how to farm via YouTube. That really fascinated me because, you know, I was lucky. I learned from my dad. I learned from my brothers. You know, we have a generational place here and I taught I caught so many skills from that, but at the same time, there's also parentimes involved there. So when you learn, like you do, when you learn, you know, from the internet and from YouTube, um, then you're you're able to kind of form your own thing, and you're able to freely make mistakes and know what works and what doesn't. I, I think I think that's so cool that that's kind of how you picked it up. I just I, I I'm I'm fascinated by that.
1: Yeah, it's uh, um, you know, <laughs> some of this stuff's probably embarrassing, and yeah, I'm gonna lose all my farm credit right now. So, but when we, <laughs> <laughs> we moved on in our house on Fourth of July, our house is on the farm, so and I literally walked outside on the fifth of July, and there was no, nothing. That, that was just open pastures. I'm like, what do you what do you do now? I don't even know what I'm doing. So uh, I drove the first two fence posts by hand with a fence with a post hole digger. And I decided that was a terrible idea. So I said, I need to, I need to, think I to dig a hole better. So I, I, found out you could buy a tractor and put a post hole digger on the back of it, which is new to me. And so I said, okay, let's let's see the tractor. So I found a tractor. The guy delivered it to my house because I didn't have a trailer. I did have a truck, but not a trailer. And uh, he brought, I had no idea I could, I could drive a lawnmower, and that's about the extent of my experience. He, uh, he comes up tra- 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 tractors on the trailer, and he said, hey, you want to drive it?" And I said, "No, I'm, I'm okay." And, uh, he said, you want to back it off? He said, I'll back it off the trailer for you. I, of course, I'm thankful for that. We well, he backs it off the trailer and leaves the key in it running. <laughs> you, you can park it if you want to. I said, no, it's fine. And I said, and, uh, so he's looking at me kind of funny. I paid him. He leaves and I go turn the tractor off. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta look up on YouTube how to drive this thing. I have no idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I tractor, I drive it. so, uh, that was a fun, fun experience, but it's been one thing after another like that. Just, uh. You know, we, we learned how to change our oil in our car or change a tire or, or fix a light outlet or, or, or a plug or a switch, you know, in our house or whatever. So I thought, well, why not just farm on YouTube? And so um, I learned how to cash track cattle. I learned how to do artificial insemination. I learned how to wean calves. I learned how to ear tag and fly spray and everything. I mean, I, I could just tell you so many things I learned on YouTube. And it was it was nice because I have no foundation whatsoever, so I don't have the, that, that thing that I've heard in the sale barn many times. Of, you know, my dad or my grandpa did it that way, you know, and this is how they always done it. Mm-hmm. I not have any of that. I just, I watched 10 YouTube videos and figured out what I thought looked the easiest, the best, the most efficient, and the safest, and the, that's what I did. And so that's kind of how I got my techniques. And some people ask me, where did you figure that out? I, I didn't figure that out on YouTube. I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, nah, man, I think it's great. I, I I, think it's so cool that you did it that way because you did it your way. You were able to like, you know, I mean, I can't count the number of times I say, well, we do it that way because dad did it that way. Or I did yeah. it, that, I do it that way because my brother said that was the best way. That's a big one in my family is, uh, you know, uh, I'm the youngest and, you know, my brothers did it this way. And, you know, so that's the way I'm supposed yeah. to do it too. But When you don't have those expectations to live up to, man, it's, it's almost, it's really kind of freeing. I feel that's the way I feel at looking at it anyway. It's just, it's, I think it's incredible. Yeah, I got, and I actually, you know, it's funny. I got to, I I can get on YouTube, you know,
1: and, and be a harsh critic watching a video. I was like, ah, I don't, I don't know. That just broke out to me. I don't know why I just didn't look at it. I'd watch another video, and then it would give me some perspective. And I'd watch another video of the same thing. You know, after you watch ten videos, you got you got pretty good perspective of ten different ways to do it, and you can kind of pick and choose. Uh, and so it, it allowed me to not only know like how to do stuff, but then I knew the science almost behind it. You know, I knew why they were doing it instead of saying, you know, what your dad and your brothers and your and your family has always done is probably okay. I mean, I'm I, you know I'm sure, but <laughs> most people the why behind it. So I got to learn kind of the science behind why I was doing things
0: the way they were done, so. Well, and then it makes you that much more like st- strong in your convictions and strong in your why behind doing stuff, other than well, that's just why Dad did it. You know, I mean, that's to know the actual why is is really important. I feel like, and that's I found that myself asking so and I and people of this podcast know my wife did not grow up on a farm so I kind of get a little bit of dose of that from her in her just asking why and sometimes me not having an answer and I can't remember what oh it was why do we have our calves in the in the spring you know that I think that was one of the questions and Mm -hmm. I said well why do we do that did it that way but I never gave it much thought you know like everybody does it that way but then you know it it got me to think like why did we do it that way why can't we change that or something like that and to have that fresh perspective and not knowing helps figure out helps figure out you know kind of your why behind it
1: yeah well I had you know that uh, in 2014 we bought our farm but it I bought my very first cow it was the most expensive cow I ever bought was a heifer and it was cheap when I bought it. But if you know anything mm-hmm. about heifer it to develop. So I bought, I actually ended up buying yeah. two, one, one the first day and, and another one the second day and, uh, kind of grew from there. And that was a learning experience, but we were looking for like some way to keep our farm sustainable. You know, we, we didn't want to be a hobby farmer. I didn't want to sit out there and just peel around. I want sure. to try to make some, this thing and, and make it sustainable. And, um, so we, we were I was buying three-in-one cattle, you know, a pregnant cow with a calf beside her. And, and mm-hmm. kind of that way, and we grew our herd. And then I thought, well, I the sale barn prices are just like playing the lottery. i got to do something else. And I don't have a big enough farm to have a feedlot or anything, so I can't do quantity. And, and you know, if you make enough pennies, it'll turn into a dollar kind of thing. So i got to figure out some way to be more efficient with this. So that's kind of how we fell into the meat business is probably come along about – I'd say 2016, 2017, somewhere around in there. Somebody called me and said, Hey, do you have any beef for sale? And I said, No, I don't have to sell beef. And they said, Well, do you have any cows you could sell us that we could process? I said, Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think I do. And so, just through a Facebook a contact and a phone call, I sold that first cow. And I thought, That check's a lot bigger than that sale barn check for that one cow. So, I said, Let's get USDA certified. And we went all there again and went on YouTube and figured out how to do all that. So, you know, our farm kind of developed, it was not a meat, a meat business at first, but it kind of turned into that after a couple of years through just
0: some dumb luck and trial and error. So, And now look where we're at. Look look at what COVID has, has taught us in that, you know, people are going to really be looking for that guaranteed kind of uh you know know where your meat comes from and you know that's that's really going to after everything that happened with the stores earlier this year i think people are really going to look to that a lot more now and uh it's to to be adaptable is is really important and you looked at that i mean you learned that that you know when you when you go to a sale barn you are a price taker and but whenever you can kind of sell the meat and <laughs> yeah. sell the, be able to right. kind of get a premium for that, you know, you, you ha- are, are, showing what free market capitalism is all about and you are feeling a need, you're oh, feeling, yeah. you're feeling right. something like that. And it feels, and it feels great for you to do that. And it feels great for the people who buy from you too, to know that they're keeping, you know, that they know the person who's raising that meat. And I, I think it makes them feel good. Oh yeah, man! They got and you know, like you said,
1: that coronavirus that created you know a toilet paper shortage and a meat shortage. And uh, mm-hmm. we were we were doing at the beginning of this year just selling meat like crazy, and then all of a sudden COVID hit our processor, and uh, just not necessarily him, but his employees were having to quarantine because their family was around somebody, and then the USDA inspector had the quarantine. There was a shortage on on inspectors, and all of a sudden I had the cattle out there eating grass and fat and ready to process. But I couldn't get a process date. And so suddenly our meat sales mm-hmm. went to record record sales to way below normal sales, to just zero. Because yeah, I, I couldn't ran get out of- in the processor. Oh, yeah, for months, man. I, I was processing cattle yes. weekly and down to not processing cows for months. It, it, it hurt. It, it made us question, like, do we quit this right now? Because the cows don't stop eating money while they're out there getting fat. And they're way past the process right, weight right. and day- I'm going to have to do something. And, and so it was a lot of uncertainty that caught. We had some tough conversations. You know, we, we spent a lot of time talking, like, do we just stop doing this now and, and, yeah. and count our losses and, and finish now? And, or, or we keep pushing through this? I mean, I can't tell how many times we talked about that, me and my wife. And, it, of course, we stuck with it. But we had some real conversations, like, really thinking about stopping, you know. And the nice thing is it did build us a bigger customer base. Um, a lot of people through that process, you know, I've got a laundry list of people that want beef steel, and I still can't get process dates. Uh, we, we were booked out a year to get a process date when, when it started picking back up. So we have a really good processor. Luckily, he works with us really well, but but that's caused a lot of panic. People call him a, a cow, and I said, I can't get you in for a year. That that created a lot of anxiety right there. So, but it made us question our business and whether we should do it anymore and, and all the things that farmers have to deal with. You know, we, we're trying to feed people, and we can't even do that because of a virus. So,
0: right, right. So I'm going to finish up here because, you know, we, we've had such a great conversation here tonight, Matt, but I want to, I want to ask you something because it's something, and I think you and I are similar in this, in that we have a lot of things going on as far, you know, we're, we're husbands, we're, we're, we're fathers, we're farmers, we're, but we're also healthcare providers and, Do you, do you achieve a balance? Like, do you, is there, is there something like where you like, can like say like, I'm doing everything I can, like, is there ever, does it ever like feel like that for you? Or, I mean, is it one of those things where you just kind of got to give one thing, the attention at that time and maybe let something else kind of cruise a little bit?
1: Yeah. It, I don't know if this is a bad thing, but you almost have to compartmentalize a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. leave, like you've heard, you know, leave the work at work and, and don't bring it home, you know, and I, in a way you almost have to do that. And, and, uh, you know, when I'm at work, man, I just feel like there's not enough time in the day. And, and, and like, you know, with healthcare, it's insurance companies and, and all this, you know, you're constantly fighting that battle. They want, they want, want you to do more with less and for less, but that's, a, that's another thing, man, Going back to my childhood, i I was able compartmentalize my family life the craziness and i could go clock in when i got to school as a little kid and shut all that off and be a totally different be a totally different environment i could just completely erase all the drama that just happened at home and so you know fast forward here i got three kids i you know we have a medical practice farm and you know i got a wife that i want to spend time with and you know like you said man just just when you when you get to work you clock in and that's what you're doing right then and when I get off work, sometimes it's on time. Most of the time it's not. When I get home, I'm pulling the driveway, I, I clock into my house. And that's I'm at, I'm at, I'm at my house. And, I, and you know, in reality, if I had a choice, that's where I'd want to be, spend time with my kids and my wife all day long. But life being the way it is, that's, that can't happen. So it, you do. you got to give give the time to what's in front of you. You know, give it the time. Give it the attention. And, and be fully 100% immersed and what you got going on at the time, Whether there's here p- taking care of patients or it's, you know, in the floor with my kids playing with tractors and acting like I'm a bull and them riding me around and, you know, we're out in the, out in the woods deer hunting with them, you know, give your attention to that. And, uh, it's tough though, man, you know, I have found out the best people, are the, <laughs> the best people are the busiest people. And, uh, you know, and that and that can be a tough a struggle, man. I I I have a personal battle with it on a lot of days. I feel guilty sometimes. You know, not not being somewhere long as as much as I should be or as much time as I should be, and you know, I feel bad about it sometimes. And I try to make up for it later, but you know, you know, how it is. There's just not enough hours in the day sometimes. So,
0: yeah, man. No, I think we could, and maybe we will someday. Maybe we'll revisit this in 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 the future because I'd like. I think that I think that is worth talking about even further is is that compartmentalization that's exactly the term i use for myself and everything we do too because i mean that's that's super important you have to man you can't let another one of that another part of your life bleed into one of the other or else you know then they start competing and you don't want that because each one of them deserves the attention that it deserves and doesn't need to be distracted from anything else and you know it's I think balance is a misleading term. It's it's like a moving target in what, in instead of talking about balance, you, you talk about, you know, giving each thing the appropriate amount of attention at the appropriate time. I mean, that's, that's what, that's, what's helped me in the last and what, why I've been able to maintain doing so many things. Yeah. And
1: I, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to say I, I went at it all the time, and I'm doing it successfully. But I am trying. No. And yeah. People do, you know. People tell me all the time, man, you got a lot of irons in the fire. And I do. I mean, I got a lot of stuff going on. And, and I always tell my wife, I was like, I'm, I'm going to say no the next time. To something when the next thing comes up, I'm saying no. I'm going to quit this, and that way I got a free- But then somebody shows up, and they say, Will you do this? Oh, right, I, and I would. I'd love to help. I want to do that. I want to be active and engaged and. I want to assist people and help people and do whatever I can do for organizations. But I don't, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard to say no when you know you have a skill set that can be beneficial and help somebody else out. But, you know, I'm not saying I always win at it, but um, I do try to at least clock. When I'm in whatever I'm doing right there. I try to clock in and I'm right there. I'm, I'm fully immersed in, in that moment. And, uh, you know, I, there's, you know, you've had them conversations with your wife. I can hear it in your voice and I've had it with mine you know, I got to quit saying yes, got to quit saying yes, you know, so. Yeah.
0: but yeah. 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 It's, it's tough, man. It's a, it's tough. It's a tough thing to do, but you're right. It's, you know, at, at certain, at a certain point you reach saturation, right. And you just <laughs> do which where you can't do anymore, but, but at the same time, you, you want to find out where that is too. <laughs>
1: yeah. Push the limit. So you find out where the line's are, I guess, but you know, it's, I yeah. Yeah. Play. I love, I love working. I, I, I absolutely love medicine. I, I love taking care of people. I mean, it's, it's uh it's the most rewarding job and uh, but there there's, I'm, I'm always trying to find a way to, you know, how do I get my kids around me more? How do I get my family around me more? And we've kind of went back, you know, a lot of people don't do this anymore, but here in the South, people used to get together after church on Sundays and spend most of the day together, you know, watch a football game or, or sit around and eat mm-hmm. and spend a visit and COVID hit. And that took away a lot of this, uh, that family engagement that already was, was null and void in the South anymore. And uh, me and my wife bought a a 14-foot dining room table and just filled it up with chairs all the way around. And we invited both of our families over right before COVID started. And it went incredible. People came over. They didn't know what to do, though. They didn't, like, do we stay here all day or do we sit? What do we do? And uh, But it was awesome. It made some great connections. Then COVID happened, so it kind of postponed that. But we're fixing to kick that back off. And uh,
0: that
1: that family dynamic, that family structure, man, that's going to be – I think for my kids and future generations, that's going to be an important thing that we need to revisit and and revitalize by all all of us buying those 14-foot oak tables and sitting around hanging out a little bit.
0: Yeah, no, man. Yes, I I love that. I love because that's where the important stuff, that's where the cool stuff happens is in in settings like that.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's what I try to, we do that kind of stuff and we try to be all about it, you know, and and, uh, when we're there, we're in it. And uh, that, that helps for those times that you kind of slack, you know, compartmentalizing or or spending the appropriate time with things that you should. Stuff like that kind of grounds you, brings you back.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Well, Matt, man, it's been a pleasure tonight talking to you. It's I, I feel like you and I could chat about stuff for the entire night. But like you said, I, I'm not sure either one of our wives would appreciate that very much. <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right yeah well i i'm I, i'm serious yeah, about I that. Do, I do
1: appreciate you well yeah uh I, I appreciate you having me on man and i and uh this kind of stuff's great man i i love having these conversations because somebody, somebody's gonna hear this thing and it's gonna do something you know they they may have a uh, reach out to one of us and and say hey I, i've got some questions about this or or their family's going through some stuff, and they're not sure how to how to handle it. So this this kind of stuff, man, is awesome, and, and I appreciate the work that you're doing. It means a lot to a lot of people, and you know, I, there's there's a lot of a lot of winning that goes on when conversations like this happen. That and, and you doing podcasts like this that you never hear about. So don't 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 take that for granted.
0: Well, I appreciate that, man. And like, like I guess the first time I heard you, I I knew you and I had to chat because. I feel like there's so much common ground and I feel like we can have conversations, like you said, that can really help people because I feel like the both of us are in a unique situation where we're in healthcare, but also understand agriculture from the inside perspective. And I don't think there's a whole lot of that goes on, even, in, even in agriculture communities. And, uh, I think it's important for us to, to flex that muscle as much as we can. Oh yeah,
1: absolutely, man. Because as like I said, it's a uh, few and far between, and uh, you know the uh, rural health is as about as agriculture as it gets because it's lacking big time, and it's something we got to step our game up on across the board. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, totally agree. Well, man, I, uh, again, appreciate it, and uh, I, 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 I'm serious. I want to do this again.
1: Yeah, someday. let's do it, man. I appreciate. It. Thanks for your time.
0: Okay. Yep. Again, awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Ag State of Mind. We hope this episode has encouraged you. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ag State of Mind.
1: And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher,
0: or Spotify so you never miss an episode. See you next week.